Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Grand Illusion, Dharma and Deception in the Mahabharata. Suppose you're minding your own business one day, when suddenly a group of strangers rushes up to you. You have to help us, they gasp. We're being pursued by a group of murderous thieves who want to rob and kill us. Don't tell them which way we ran. Sure enough, only a minute after they sprint away, a group of cruel-looking men arrive and ask which way the first group has gone. You're now in a dilemma. You could say nothing, in which case the robbers seem likely to torture the information out of you. You could lie and send them the wrong way, or you could tell the truth and send the murderers after their victims. If you've ever been a philosophy student, or are open-minded enough that you spend your time hanging out with philosophers, you may already have been asked to consider this puzzle. It was raised by Immanuel Kant as a challenge to his own teaching that no one should ever lie. But the example appears earlier than Kant, in fact, much, much earlier. It features in the eighth of the 18 books of the Mahabharata, in the form of a story told by none other than God himself, incarnated as the charioteer Krishna. In Krishna's version, the dilemma is confronted by a priest who has vowed always to tell the truth. He duly informs the murderers which way they should go to find their victims. Good though his intentions are, the priest is later sent to hell for his decision. The Mahabharata has plenty to teach us about ethics, and it is certainly great. As far as we're concerned, it can therefore be considered a great work of ethics. Not that it pursues this subject abstractly, as for instance Kant's critique of practical reason does. Rather, this is ethics performed through the telling of stories. The product of generations worth of orally transmitted narratives, it is a monument in the landscape of Indian literature, which holds within it a whole culture, and has, beginning in antiquity, had religious meaning for its readers. Indeed, the Mahabharata refers to itself as a fifth Veda, It is one of a pair of ancient epics, the other being the Ramayana, which makes it almost irresistible to draw comparisons to the Iliad and Odyssey of Greek antiquity. The comparison is not just obvious, but to some extent even illuminating. All four epics feature superhuman heroes who endure warfare while being manipulated by the gods, and like Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, the Mahabharata is ascribed to a single bard named Vyasa. But when we say that the Mahabharata is great, we include the most literal sense. It is enormously long, eight times the size of both Homeric epics combined. It is also of more direct, obvious importance for the historian of philosophy than either the Iliad or the Odyssey, since embedded within the Mahabharata is a section called the Song of the Lord, or Bhagavad Gita, which, like the Iliad, centers on the reluctance of a great warrior to fight, but is a classic philosophical text. We'll be looking at the Gita next time. In this episode, we want to look at a few scenes from the rest of the epic, which have something to tell us about this question of whether deception can ever be morally justified. This is only one of the many themes we could have picked out of the Mahabharata, which makes a point of its own comprehensiveness, boasting, what is not here does not exist anywhere. But it is a particularly apt theme, given that the Mahabharata also makes a point of its own status as a narrative, 
a myth whose making is brought constantly to the reader's attention. This is highlighted by the multiple frames within which the epic is presented. The entirety is purportedly the work of the bard Vyasa, but we hear it at several removes. He recited it first to his son and several disciples, one of whom recited it again from memory, with this then being repeated by yet another bard, whose recitation is supposedly the basis of the full 18-book version that has come down to us. This version is in fact not just full, but stuffed to bursting, often with material that may seem rather extraneous, stories and digressions that have been called sub-tales. These probably show that the epic narrative was treated as a framework, with many generations of storytellers adding new material that would have been relevant to the concerns of their own time. The result is a text that is invented and reinvented, and makes us constantly aware of that inventedness. Vyasa, Krishna, and other figures both act within the narrative and tell various stories. This literary device, which allows the mythmaker to enter the plot of his own myth, reveals what the Mahabharata is about, the elusiveness of truth and the ambiguity of moral rightness. Within the narrative, too, the heroes engage in all manner of deception, with the plot often driven forward by lies, tricks, and subterfuge. This is epic as grand illusion, featuring characters who are themselves illusionists. Even a brief summary of the central story will get the point across. It tells of two families within the same lineage, whose line is known as the Bharata, which is also the name of the geographical territory of India. Hence the title, Mahabharata, or Great Tale of the Bharata, with great again referring to its enormous scope. The text itself tells us that the narrative circulates in longer and shorter forms, with our text, of course, being very much the long form, a point underscored by a further story, which relates how it was literally weighed in scales against the four Vedas and found to be heavier. Pitted against each other in the epic tale are two sets of brothers, the Pandavas and the Kauravas. The Pandavas are the heroes of the tale, led with some reluctance by their oldest brother, Yudhisthira, famed always for telling the truth. This side also includes the great archer, Arjuna, whose reluctance to fight against his kin provokes Krishna to preach the Gita to him in order to persuade him to enter the battle. On the other side, the Kauravas are a hundred brothers, led by the anti-hero Duryodhana, who cheats the Pandavas of their birthright by duping Yudhisthira in two games of dice. The rest of the story tells of the wanderings of the Pandavas and their ultimate return and victorious 18-day war against the Kauravas at the cost of massive bloodshed on both sides. As in the Iliad and Odyssey, there are set pieces detailing the deeds and deaths of central heroes, with some of the most prominent deaths again involving deception and lies. To understand the significance of these scenes, we need to think a bit about the nature of the moral code that is potentially being violated in such acts of treachery. And that means thinking about dharma. We've already encountered this word and its Pali equivalent dhamma in earlier episodes. It was used in earlier Buddhism for the teaching of the Buddha and appears repeatedly in the moralizing inscriptions of the Buddhist king Ashoka. You'll see it translated in ways that suggest a disconcertingly wide range of application, from law to morality to religion. 
In modern India, it is indeed sometimes used to mean simply religion, for instance when the enterprise we call philosophy of religion is rendered dharma darshana. But in the ancient context, dharma captures only part of what we might mean by religion, roughly the part where religion bears on moral conduct. It was sometimes noted that living in accordance with dharma was not sufficient to secure liberation from the cycle of reincarnation, even if it might be necessary for attaining that highest religious goal. In general terms, one's dharma consists in all the various sorts of duties one has, as a particular individual, as a member of a family and of a society, and simply as a human being. In our earliest surviving literature, though, dharma does not really have this meaning of a general moral code or law. Instead, it is used in a way that is closer to its etymological basis in the verb root meaning preserve or support. The first Vedas thus use dharma to speak of supporting the cosmos, or when Indra holds apart the rivers from the plants. This same usage is found in ancient Iran. Zoroastrian texts employ a word with the same linguistic origin to talk about God holding the heavens so that they do not fall. The word dharma does not, however, play much of a role in subsequent Vedic literature. When it does appear, it is especially in social and legal contexts where dharma has to do with the king's role of upholding order and justice, as contrasted to the so-called law of the fish, where in the absence of the protective shelter of royal law, the smaller would be left to the mercy of the bigger. This suggests a rather down-to-earth answer to the question of which actions accord with dharma, just look at existing social practice. When a certain behavior is accepted as praiseworthy, that is dharma, while a behavior that earns rebuke is its opposite, adharma. Here, we might see a parallel between dharma and linguistic correctness as envisioned by the Sanskrit grammarians. You may remember that Patanjali remarked, if you want words, don't go to a grammarian, but to a competent language user. Likewise, if you want ethics, don't ask a philosopher, but find people who are agreed to be ethical. This does get us closer to the distinctively ethical meaning of dharma, and in fact it recalls the socially embedded idea of virtue set out in Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. But dharma ultimately took on the more ambitious sense of an abstract general set of moral requirements. It seems that this happened especially, and perhaps specifically, with the advent of Buddhism. The Buddha's dhamma, or teaching, was aimed at everyone regardless of their social role or caste, and the same universalism is expressed in those inscriptions of Ashoka. This sense, then, becomes pervasive in subsequent Indian literature, not least in the Dharma Sutras that we contrasted to Kautilya's Atta Shastra in episode 11. At this stage, Dharma could be articulated as one of the main goals of life, alongside Artha, or practical advantage, and Kama, or pleasure. Movements like the Buddhists and Jainas add a fourth greater goal, moksha, or liberation. Of course, this more ambitious conception of dharma, as an absolute code or law that applies to all alike, makes it much harder to know exactly how one might obey its strictures. As one of the Dharma Sutras puts it, dharma and adharma do not go about saying, here we are. And this brings us back to the Mahabharata. Passages like the parable of the truth-telling priest and murdering thieves show us that it is no easy matter to say where dharma leads. Even those who seek to live well may get things wrong, and this is especially clear in the case of moral dilemmas, where no choice seems to be the right one. 
It is no accident that Krishna's tale focuses specifically on the case of truth-telling, since this is a recurrent theme in the epic. The leader of the Pandavas is the morally upright Yudhisthira, whose commitment to honesty is symbolized by the fact that his chariot floats a little above the ground as he rides. He comes crashing back to earth, quite literally, when he finally indulges in a falsehood. He does so out of desperation, since there is no other way for him to slay the Kaurava hero, Drona. Rather astonishingly, it is the divine Krishna himself who suggests the base stratagem by which Drona may be defeated. He cannot in any way be defeated by force in battle. Casting aside virtue, O Pandavas, resort to a method fit for victory so that Drona might not kill everyone in battle. I think that he will not fight if his son were killed. Let some man say that he has been slain in battle. This proposal meets with mixed reactions among the Pandavas. Arjuna immediately disagrees with the advice, whereas his warlike brother, Bhima, thinks it's a splendid idea. Truth-telling Yudhisthira is torn. He absolutely wants to win. Indeed, it's said that he is addicted to victory. But he is reluctant to spoil his spotless moral record. In the end, the Pandavas hit upon the following subterfuge. They will kill an elephant whose name just happens to be the same as Drona's son. Then they can tell Drona of the death, thinking of the elephant, but letting Drona assume the son is meant. As Arjuna puts it, this covers a lie with a truth, as if with armor. At first, it is Bhima who, with no compunctions, tells Drona the misleading news, but Drona is suspicious and asks for confirmation from Yudhisthira, who confirms the fateful lie, though he mutters under his breath that it is only an elephant who has died so that Drona will not hear him. The ruse works. Drona drops his weapons, ready to die in his grief, and is killed. But the success is short-lived. Drona's son will wreak great destruction on the Pandavas, and poor Yudhisthira has lost his spotless reputation. He is later forced to witness his brother's suffering in hell, a vision that is then revealed to be an illusion in return for his part in deceiving Drona. Despite the bitter fruits reaped by Yudhisthira, the Mahabharata actually has a rather ambivalent attitude towards such deceptions. In another passage, Krishna warns the Pandavas that the Kaurava leader, Duryodhana, can only be killed by tricking him. And in this case, he is given a speech indicating how such conduct can be justified, or perhaps the right word would be rationalized. He says, When enemies become too numerous and powerful, they should be slain by deceit and stratagems. This is the path formerly trodden by the gods to slay the demons, and a path trodden by the virtuous may be trodden by all. This advice seems to reverse a slogan found elsewhere. Where Dharma is, there is Krishna. To put it another way, if it's good enough for the gods, then it's good enough for us. Perhaps the idea here is that the end justifies the means, and that if the end is the right one, then whatever means are necessary are themselves right. In the passages just mentioned, Krishna insists that it is only by deception that the Pandavas can be victorious, and as he himself remarks, where Dharma is, there is victory. On this reading, the tricks played by the Pandavas are excused because they bring about the correct result, namely the defeat of their enemies, who are themselves tricksters. Don't forget that the whole war can be traced to Duryodhana's double dealing in the dice game that deprives the Pandavas of their kingdom. 
but if the end justifies the means, what accounts for the passages that seem to pass disapproving judgment on the Pandavas, and especially Yudhisthira, for their ignoble tactics? A banal answer could be to refer to the protracted and many-handed writing of the Mahabharata. As we suggested with the Atta Shastra, it is no surprise that a lengthy work composed by numerous authors of different generations would contain the occasional self-contradiction. But perhaps the Mahabharata does not want us to think that things are so simple, that the way of Dharma is either to tell the truth and lose, or win by lying, and that we just need to figure out which answer is the right one. It has been aptly remarked that the Mahabharata never wants to resolve itself, and so it is here. For there are multiple ethical imperatives at work. Sure, it's good to tell the truth, but it's also good to defeat wicked enemies and secure victory for your clan, especially if a god is encouraging you to do so. As Bimal Matilal has argued, the role of Krishna in these passages could be that of a moral innovator, who teaches the Pandavas to shake off the rigid code of conduct previously cherished by Yudhisthira, that one should tell the truth in all circumstances. It's the same code followed by the priest, who led murderers to their victims. Matilal suggests that Krishna is here a moral agent who gave up moral integrity to avoid a total miscarriage of justice in the end. But even if the duty to tell the truth is somehow trumped by other concerns, it may remain as a duty nonetheless. This is why it makes sense for the Mahabharata to show the consequences of Yudhisthira's actions with the dramatic devices of the grounded chariot and vision of hell. For him, and for all of us from time to time, the best thing to do may involve doing something wrong, something against dharma. To this we may add that the Mahabharata recognizes that the dharma of one group or person may differ from that of another. Truth-telling is Yudhisthira's calling card, and it is in the most fundamental sense out of character for him to collude in a lie. He thus violates what may be called his svadharma, the duty or code that is relevant to him specifically. For a man like Bhima, whose character revolves solely around the Kshatriya code of victory, the dilemma we've been discussing would hardly arise, or not arise at all. No wonder that Yudhisthira tried to have it both ways, by muttering under his breath in response to Drona. His dharma as a truth-teller was clashing with his dharma as a Kshatriya leader. In other passages, he tries to escape by questioning the very validity of that dharma. The code of the warrior is actually no better than the law of the fish where the strong prevail. Better to give up that code, even if it means retreating from the life of the Kshatriya and becoming an ascetic. As Yudhisthira observes, the peaceful man sleeps happily as he has given up both victory and defeat. Here, we have the central insight that emerges from the moral dilemmas of the Mahabharata. The epic recognizes that such dilemmas may be genuinely tragic, and that not all duties can be satisfied. This does not mean that there is no right response at all. It seems clear that in Krishna's story of the priest and the murderers, the priest should not have told the truth. What it means is that dharma may operate on different levels, if only because we as moral agents are complex beings with different sorts of duty and responsibility. Yudhisthira is a truth-teller by character and inclination, a warrior by circumstance. This leads him into a conflict that can only be resolved by betraying himself or his responsibilities. The same sort of dilemma is the catalyst for the most famous section of the Mahabharata. 
It begins when Yudhisthira's younger brother Arjuna hesitates about whether he should act as a warrior and ride forth to meet his enemy, or as a kinsman of those very enemies who should not slay members of his own family. Fortunately, you face no such conflict, and it should be an easy decision for you to join us as we turn to the Bhagavad Gita, next time here on the History of Philosophy in India.